0: Welcome to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter by chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse by verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of Scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Mosiah, Chapter 20 Well, this chapter commences with the reign of King Limhi the grandson of Zenith, and King Noah's son and successor to the throne. This story of Limhi's reign really began at the end of the previous chapter, and now it will extend through Mosiah chapter 22. Although Limhi's story does end with deliverance, uh, escape really, and restoration to the covenant in the land of Zarahemla, and of course we will look forward to that in Mosiah chapter 25, In the meantime, Limhi's story is laced with tragedy. So yes, as we begin in Mosiah chapter 20, Limhi's kingdom is in the same geographic place as his predecessors, the land of Nephi, and he has had a period of peace for two years, as we learned at the end of the previous chapter. But conditions for the people under this new king, Limhi, are very different. They are laden with heavy taxation, even one half of all that they possessed, as the text says. Yes, the majority of Limhi's people are still together in the land of Shilom, Lehi-Nephi, and the immediate surrounding area, but they have suffered terrible losses. Loss from battle, yes, but not because the Nephites went out to meet the Lamanites in the strength of the Lord, as it was when Zenith settled this area or even in their own strength, as it was when Noah defeated the Lamanites in Mosiah chapter 10. Instead, this loss was from retreat, where the physically weakest among the fleeing Nephites were overtaken and slain, and then ultimately abandoned by their ruler, quote, the king, this is Noah, commanded them that all the men should leave their wives and their children and flee before the Lamanites. That's in Mosiah 19, verse 11. Then even more loss came as a result of infighting and fractionalization, and we have read about all that in the previous chapter. So yes, Limhi is the new king, but this is not because of the kind of transfer that we are accustomed to seeing in the record thus far. It is only because his predecessor, and father, mind you, was killed by his own people. Quote, they were angry with the king. And caused that he should suffer even unto death by fire. And that's out of Mosiah chapter 19, verse 20, and of course, is a fulfillment of Abinadi's prophecy. Limhi assumed the throne, yes, but while simultaneously pledging his allegiance to the king of the Lamanites. Quote And also Limhi, being the son of the king, having the kingdom conferred upon him by the people, made oath unto the king of the Lamanites that his people should pay tribute unto him, even one half of all they possessed. That's in Mosiah chapter 19, verse 26. So from this point forward, Limhi was a vassal king, a tributary monarch. What precipitated such tragedy then? The people of Limhi had yet to fully learn this answer as their world came crashing down around them. Yet, as readers, we are well aware of what it was. Great moral spiritual tragedies preceded these temporal ones. We read in Mosiah chapter 10 about the moral decay that was taking place under Noah's rule. Unfortunately for the people, they only saw this as the subtext to a more salient or relevant story of economic growth and development. Their own moral shortfalls, justified, of course, by the dalliances and licentiousness of their king, were a matter of individual choice. They were just a private matter. And while moral sin may have initially looked unsavory to them, they apparently embraced it. They followed the pattern that was famously described in Alexander Pope's essay on man, vice is a monster of so frightful mien, as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity. Then embrace. Well, then this led to their blindness. Like the Galileans and the Judeans, who had the Savior of the world walking among them, they had a holy prophet in their midst. Yet when their opportunity came to accept Abinadi's message, they rejected him and led him to execution. The people of the town square were guilty of this act initially, as were then the rulers who were still willing to execute Abinadi after he stood before them in a state of transfigured majesty, declaring glad tidings and publishing peace directly to King Noah's court. Then another moral tragedy followed this one. The most righteous among the people of Limhi quietly left them, Alma and 450 followers who were cleansed by the power of Jesus Christ through repentance and covenant making, and who had the power and authority of the priesthood with them, slipped quietly away into the wilderness. At this point, it was amen to the priesthood of the city of Limhi. Here is the problem. These moments of moral compromise for the Nephites were the true beginning to the tragedies that followed, the terrible things we read of in Mosiah 19, 20, 21, before deliverance finally comes to this broken kingdom. It is certainly the same today. What is the most pressing issue that lies before any society? It is their relationship to God. The Book of Mormon message is clear on this. He will prosper them and protect them if they will remember him and keep his commandments. That is the great promise of the promised land. Inasmuch as ye will keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. When the Lord's messengers are ignored, and worse yet, when those who declare glad tidings and publish peace are deemed worthy of death and killed by those who ostensibly administer the law, then tragedy inevitably follows. Amen to the priesthood of that man is what happens to those individually who dishonor the priesthood of God, as expressed in Doctrine and Covenant section 121. When it is amen to the priesthood of an entire nation, then they are truly a people in peril. They lose their peace and security. Their petty carnal concerns and luxurious diversions, their first world problems, we might say, are replaced with the dread that comes from the visitation of hostile armies, death, disease, and economic ruin. While the earlier spiritual and moral decay is not universally appreciated as tragic, by an otherwise enlightened secular society, these things most certainly are. For the people of Zenith, then of Noah, and now of Limhi, their gradual spiritual breakdown and their acceptance of a licentious, idolatrous, and materialistic lifestyle led to the breakdown of their borders and ultimately to death, invasion, and economic ruin. Incredibly, we will discover that the people of Limhi are still not beyond the reach of the Redeemer. This too is the message of the Book of Mormon. As the Savior said in 3 Nephi 10, verse 6, O ye house of Israel whom I have spared, how oft will I gather you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, if ye will repent and return unto me with full purpose of heart. Once Limhi's people humble themselves and begin to call upon the Lord— Once they repent and return, as the Savior said it, and as we will see in the next chapter, then the Savior ultimately does return back to them and returns them to a place of safety. Their prayers are ultimately answered and their fortunes change as we come to the point in the story that brings us full circle round, which will happen in Mosiah chapter 21, to the point at which they are discovered by a new set of messengers, not in the form of Abinadi or Alma, but in the form of an envoy that was dispatched by King Mosiah and led by Ammon. For now, however, we will stay with the people of Limhi and learn more about the circumstances of their captivity, how it is, owing to the degenerate priests of King Noah, that their relations with the Lamanites are severely compromised and then provisionally repaired, but these relations are destined to dissolve into total dysfunctionality in the next chapter. Now for an overview of Mosiah chapter 20. The first five verses of this chapter remind us that when Noah was destroyed by his own people, his priests were not, and they fled into the wilderness. They are still around, and we discover what they do in verses 1 through 5 that precipitates a series of events for Limhi and his people that bring them terrible grief and um, conflict with the Lamanites. They abduct 24 Lamanite daughters in this first section. Now, we see the reaction of the Lamanites to the loss of their daughters in verses 6 and 7, and then we discover uh, that Limhi must really respond preemptively because the reaction of the Lamanites is quite natural. They are going to go to battle Against the Nephites, notwithstanding the oath that they had previously made that uh, was responsible for the two years of peace that the people of Limhi had had up to this point. But because of this loss of their 24 daughters, they're now going to go to battle against the Lamanites. Thanks to the tower that was erected during Noah's building campaign, the one that allowed them to see into the land of Shemlon, uh, Limhi and his people discovered that the Lamanites were preparing to come against them. This allowed Limhi to respond preemptively. And in fact, they did defeat the Lamanites in this instance. And among the dead that they were gathering, they discovered the king of the Lamanites himself, although he actually was not completely dead, so they revive him. And this happens in verses 12 through 15. They have a dialogue with the king of the Lamanites, and in this dialogue... They discover the cause for the Lamanites coming among the people. Limhi's immediate reaction to this is acceptance that his own people were indeed responsible for the abduction of these Lamanite daughters. It is at this point, in verses 17-22, through that Gideon suggests that something else has actually happened to Limhi. He says, "'Forbear, O king!' Do ye not remember the priests of thy father whom this people sought to destroy, and are they not in the wilderness, and are not they the ones who have stolen the daughters of the Lamanites? Now remember, they were stolen from the land of Shemlon. We learn this at the beginning of the chapter. So at this point and during this period of peace, it, it would have been very out of character for the people of Limhi to make their way into the land of Shemlon and abduct These 24 daughters. So, this explanation by Gideon would have immediately seemed plausible to Limhi. This is then explained to the king of the Lamanites that those who were responsible for abducting his 24 daughters were not the people of Limhi as they are now constituted, it was the priests of King Noah. Therefore, the oath that has kept the peace for the previous two years had actually not been broken by the Nephites. This impresses King Laman, uh, as he was probably called, but the king of the Lamanites. It impresses him to the extent that he is willing to go before the Lamanite armies uh, as their king. Uh, He is willing to go before them with the Nephites unarmed and pacify them and restore the oath that had been made between these two nations two years previous when Limhi was installed as king. And that is how this chapter ends. Going back then to a reading of the text, verse 1, Now there was a place in Shemlon where the daughters of the Lamanites did gather themselves together to sing and to dance and to make themselves merry. Now Shemlon, let's just review, that's where the Lamanites were. Shilom is the city where the Nephites lived. It's probably the same capital city that Nephi himself established when we see him coming into the land of Nephi in 2 Nephi chapter 5, and in fact it has phonetic similarity to Shalom, which is very similar to the name Jerusalem. So it is probable that Nephi's mindset in setting up this city was that it was to be A new version of Jerusalem in the new world. So that's Shilom, but this is Shemlon, and that's where the Lamanites were, and we learned that during Noah's reign uh, that he built a tower that was high enough that the Nephites could actually see into the land of Shemlon, and this served them well on several occasions so far where they were able to see that the Lamanites were making preparation for war. That will happen again in this chapter, as we know. So uh, In the place of Shemlon, where the daughters of the Lamanites did gather themselves together, it was for them to sing and to dance and to make themselves merry. This is kind of curious, and we have some commentary on this episode from John Welch. He says, In ancient Israel, it was a tradition for the maidens of Israel to gather to dance. This was a matrimonial holiday for youth. Following the conclusion of their summer chores in the fields, Youths would turn their attention to bride hunting and the dance of the maidens. Lehi and his people, of course, would have known the earlier traditions of dancing and bride hunting, and perhaps this sheds light on the time when the priests of Noah carried off twenty four Lamanite daughters to be their wives. Mosiah chapter twenty, verse one tells us that there was a place in Shemlon, where the daughters of the Lamanites did gather themselves together to sing and to dance, and to make themselves merry, this seems to say that the place was a customary one. The place may have been at an outlying shrine or sacred spot. It was not in the wilderness as such, for the priests went from there into the wilderness, but neither was it inside a city. There the priests found the young women, hid themselves and watched, and sprang out of their hiding places, taking the young women into the wilderness. And we're about to read all of this. The Hebrew idiom translated lying in wait usually connotes premeditation and planning, implying that the priests may well have known of this place and custom for young women to be there. Indeed, the young women apparently became the priests' wives willingly enough, at least we find no indication that any of them tried to escape, and all of them later pled with their brothers and fathers not to kill their husbands. We'll read of that in Mosiah chapter 23. This suggests that the Lamanite daughters had gathered to dance in celebration of a vestige of something like the pre-exilic Israelite festival of the 5th of Av. Is that how the priests of Noah knew where to go and when to be there? Is that why the young women accepted the priests as husbands? After all, they would have been dancing to attract husbands— the Old Testament records one similar occurrence. During the period of the judges, a feast of Jehovah was held yearly at Shiloh, which was then the religious center of Israel. One year, the men of Benjamin purposefully went to Shiloh on this feast day, laid in wait in the vineyards, caught every man his wife of the daughters of Shiloh, and took them to the land of Benjamin. That happens in Judges chapter 21 verses 16-23. This isolated biblical account, however, does not give the whole picture. It does not convey the point that this celebration was probably a widespread festival observed for many centuries among the ancient Israelites. Furthermore, the matrimonial character of the dances is only identified in later Talmudic traditions. Now returning back to the narrative in verse 2, and it came to pass that there was one day a small number of them, again speaking of these daughters of the Lamanites, Gathered together to sing and dance. And now the priests of King Noah, being ashamed to return to the city of Nephi, yea, and also fearing that the people would slay them, therefore they durst not return to their wives and their children. And having tarried in the wilderness, and having discovered the daughters of the Lamanites, they laid and watched them. And when they were but a few of them gathered together to dance, they came forth out of their secret places, and took them and carried them into the wilderness yea, twenty and four of the daughters of the Lamanites, they carried into the wilderness. There's no need particularly at this point, I think, to comment on the moral depravity of these priests of King Noah. It's all very self-evident as we go through the text. We do have this from John Welch with respect to uh, the, the the number 24, 24 daughters. He says, consider the significance of the number 24 in ancient Israel and in the Book of Mormon. And uh, to that, I would add that you can see it in the Book of Revelation as well. Certain numbers were clearly meaningful in antiquity. Seven was the number of spiritual perfection, as in the seven seals in the Book of Revelation. Twelve was a governmental number, as with the twelve tribes, twelve apostles. The number 24, being a multiple of twelve, was associated with heavenly government, especially priestly judgment and temple service. Apparently there were 24 judges on King Noah's court, since Noah and his priests kidnapped 24 Lamanite daughters. So if this is true, as John Welch is suggesting here, then we now know that King Noah's priests uh, numbered 24. There is a problem with this, however, and that is that Alma was no longer among them. Um, So so that would remain a mystery. Uh, That would mean that there were 23 priests uh, because they were without Alma. So uh, we'll just have to wonder about that. Now, verse 6, we get the Lamanite reaction to this abduction. And it came to pass that when the Lamanites found that their daughters had been missing, they were angry with the people of Limhi, for they thought it was the people of Limhi. Therefore they sent their armies forth, Yea, even the king himself went before his people, and they went up to the land of Nephi to destroy the people of Limhi. The king is clearly indignant here. The oath that was made two years previously has been broken. He's indignant over that and undoubtedly indignant because of the loss of these twenty-four daughters, Uh, so much so that he is going to go in the front of the Lamanite armies and we'll see what the consequences of that is in just a few moments. Now, uh, owing to this tower that we've discussed previously that was erected in the land of Shilom, uh, Limhi is able to respond preemptively to this. So verse 8, And now Limhi had discovered them from the tower. Even all the preparations for war did he discover. Therefore he gathered his people together and laid wait for them in the fields and in the forests. Elder Dieter Uchdorf gives us an opportunity to pause here for just a moment And to consider the value, more generally speaking, kind of out of context from this story, of towers and watchmen on towers, and of course there are other scriptural passages that refer to this, but he said today we have again apostles, seers, and revelators who are watchmen on the tower, messengers of supernal healing truth. God speaks to us through them, and they are profoundly aware of the different circumstances we members are living in. They are in this world, but not of this world. They point the way, and they offer help for our difficulties, not through the wisdom of this world, but from an eternal source. Of course, we can read between the lines in this statement from Elder Uchtdorf and realize that it is autobiographical. Now, returning to the text, verse 9, and it came to pass that when the Lamanites had come up, that the people of Limhi began to fall upon them from their waiting places and began to slay them. And it came to pass that the battle became exceedingly sore, for they fought like lions for their prey. So again, the way this started was that the, the people of Limhi did have a tactical advantage because they knew that the Lamanites were coming. Yet, as we read in verse 11, and it came to pass that the people of Limhi began to drive the Lamanites before them, and here's the yet, yet they were not half so numerous as the Lamanites, but they fought for their lives. And for their wives and for their children. Therefore, they exerted themselves, and like dragons did they fight. Now, here is the first time in Mormon's description of war in his abridgment of the large plates of Nephi, where he will point out the difference in cause or the sense of cause between these two warring parties. In this case, we can see that the Nephites are defending themselves, they're on their heels. And they are defending their very lives and their wives and their children. Uh, They are not the ones that are doing the invading. Now, this is an important distinction, and we will see this, again, at many other times in Mormon's record. To the question of when war is justified, we have this short statement from President Hinckley in a conference talk he once gave called War and Peace. Modern revelation states that we are to renounce war and proclaim peace. That's out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 98, verse 16. However, we all must also be mindful of another overriding responsibility. There are times and circumstances when nations are justified, in fact, have an obligation to fight for family, for liberty, and against tyranny, threat, and oppression. So while uh, the people of Limhi, Uh, no longer have a prophet among them. They no longer have Alma among them. They apparently no longer have the priesthood among them. The covenant is no longer with them. They're not in righteousness, we might say. Uh, However, in this instance, they do seem to be justified in breaking the oath that they had made with King uh, Laman, if that was his name, the king of the Lamanites. Uh, They were justified in breaking this oath, And justified in fighting and that seems to be what mormon is pointing out here now uh, we see what the results of this war is and they discover king lamanite among their dead and we can remember from earlier that the king of the lamanites was in the front of this army as they went to attack the nephites verse 12 and it came to pass that they found the king of the lamanites among the number of their dead yet he was not dead Having been wounded and left upon the ground, so speedy was the flight of his people. And they took him and bound up his wounds, and brought him before Limhi, and said, Behold, here is the king of the Lamanites. He, having received a wound, has fallen among their dead, and they have left him. And behold, we have brought him before you, and now let us slay him. This is quite interesting. It speaks to, again, the speed, the speediness of their flight of the Lamanites during this battle. But perhaps also to their regard towards him, it's uh, quite amazing that they would have left him under these circumstances. And of course, it it could be that he uh, really did seem to have been dead when this happened. But it still is of interest. So, verse fourteen. But Limhi said unto them, "Ye shall not slay him," now, because, of course, that was their first impulse when they discovered the king was to slay him. But Limhi does something interesting. Ye shall not slay him, but bring him hither that I may see him. And they brought him. And Limhi said unto him, What cause have ye to come up to war against my people? We see Limhi's character here. And this is one of the first times we see his character. In the previous chapter, we see that he didn't want Noah to be slain, which is of interest. And here He doesn't want the king of the Lamanites to be slain, even under these circumstances. He's interested in truth, and we will see this coming forward several more times in Limhi's account. He is a man that is interested in truth, and ultimately he's interested in the covenant and in repenting, and in being baptized. And of course, all this will be realized for him later. But he says to the Nephites, "Behold, my people have not broken the." Well, he says to the Nephites, "Um, "Spare him." And then Limhi speaks directly to the king of the Lamanites and says, so here here's this dialogue that I mentioned earlier. What cause have ye to come up to war against my people? Behold, my people have not broken the oath that I made unto you. Therefore, why should ye break the oath that ye made unto my people? Regarding this dialogue, Monty Nyman said that the probable cause for Limhi's not slaying the injured king was a desire to know why the oath was broken. Oaths were sacred in both cultures. The sacredness of oaths is shown in Limhi's determination to find who is responsible for the act. Now verse 15, the dialogue continues, and now the king said, king of the Lamanites that is, I have broken the oath because thy people did carry away the daughters of my people. Therefore in my anger I did cause my people to come up to war against thy people. We can see that there is truth in what the king of the Lamanites is saying, because it was Limhi's people. The priests of Noah originally were Limhi's people. Of course, two years later, after all that has happened, they are separate from Limhi's people, um, and they are so convinced that they can't return among them, of course, that they do this thing. Uh, But... They, they were Nephites, and so uh, it's very understandable why uh, the king of the Lamanites said what he did. It's also interesting that he says, In my anger I did cause my people to come up to war against thy people. Once again, it's it's wrath, and it's, it's being wroth, and it is anger that leads one to break an oath and to perpetrate evil. And uh, this is yet another example of that. It's that grievance narrative being carried forward that uh, makes one feel uh, to feel justified in breaking the commandments and uh, fostering a narrative that would lead them to war. So verse 16, here is Limhi's reaction, and now Limhi had heard nothing concerning this matter. Therefore he said, and, and we also see something interesting here, I have to add, because we see a certain mm, uh, level of honor or loyalty that's taking place between two diplomats, two kings, two representatives of nations who are um, who are bitter enemies and who are diametrically opposed to one another, yet there's this certain uh, commonality that they hold, and so this dialogue is very interesting. And Limhai says, "'I will search among my people, and whosoever has done this thing shall perish.'" So, Limhi, it's his, it's his fidelity to this oath, that's what's coming through here as he says this. Therefore, he caused a search to be made among his people. Now, while this search is going on, Gideon has another idea. So, verse 17, now when Gideon had heard these things, he being the king's captain, he went forth and said unto the king, I pray thee forbear." And do not search this people, and lay not this thing to their charge. So what we have known of Gideon so far is that he's quick to act. Uh, He wanted to kill King Noah. Uh, We know him as being uh, rash and and quick to draw his sword. But here we can see that Gideon is very bright and he thinks tactically. And he is able to see through all of this. And he knows, uh, he has a very good sense for who it would have been that would have captured these daughters verse 18, for do ye not remember the priests of thy father, as Gideon is speaking to Limhi, whom this people sought to destroy? And are they not in the wilderness? And are not they the ones who have stolen the daughters of the Lamanites? And now that would have immediately made sense. Who would possibly uh, be at the borders of the land of Shemlon during this period of peace, which was already so tenuous? Well, it would have been these priests— Verse 19, And now behold, and tell the king of these things, that he may tell his people that they may be pacified towards us. For behold, they are already preparing to come against us. And behold, also, there are but few of us. So we're in this little latent period after this battle um, ended, where the Nephites were victorious and the king of the Lamanites was counted among their dead, but we can't forget in all of this that there were many more Lamanites back in the land of Shemlon and they are preparing to come against the Nephites again. And this time they're going to destroy them uh, fully. Gideon is aware of all of this. So then he says in verse 20, and behold, they come with their numerous hosts and except the king doth pacify them towards us, we must perish. We can just pause for a moment and uh, look at this tragedy from a uh, kind of a higher altitude view for a moment and see how it is that it really all came from a misunderstanding. Uh, Elder Neal Maxwell once said this, the error of the Lamanites nearly led to the annihilation of Limhi's people. The destruction caused by misunderstanding can happen in many areas of life. There are times when one of the greatest acts of service we can perform is to stop something. The emotional chain of reaction and overreaction can come at us like electric voltage, it is very tempting to simply pass along. But we must say, let it stop with me. At times we should be stern, sweet sentries, willing to expose ourselves to misunderstanding and pain in order to keep undesirable things from spreading any farther. Verse 21, Gideon continues, For are not the words of Abinadi fulfilled which he prophesied against us? This is showing us once again that Gideon is a man of character, as he recalls Abinadi's words. And he says, And all this because we would not hearken unto the words of the Lord and turn from our iniquities. It's almost as though Gideon's awareness of this connection between Abinadi's prophecies and his um, destruction by the Nephite people and and the way in which it, it has led Limhi's people to bondage, uh, Gideon's awareness of all of this... Um, is impressive, and perhaps he was precluded from following Alma and defending Abinadi only because of his particular station in the military. He is clearly a man who is aware of all these things and is potentially a follower of Christ in the fullest sense, as was Limhi. So verse 22, And now let us pacify the king, and we will fulfill the oath which we have made unto him, for it is better that we should be in bondage than that we should lose our lives. Therefore, let us put a stop to the shedding of so much blood. So we just see one more concession here, and there are compromises and concessions throughout this story to the point now that the Nephites are, are left to accept their terrible bondage and their terrible taxation, the loss that they've experienced so far, but then they're put in a position where they have to compare that with being destroyed altogether and losing their lives. And so in this bargain, they decide to, as Gideon says, therefore, let us put a stop to the shedding of so much blood. Clyde Williams, in his um, piece called Deliverance from Bondage, which is something that we've referred to earlier when we were first introduced to Limhi, he says although physical bondage is the most recognizable form of bondage, the Lord often uses it to persuade people to repent. The eternal effects of spiritual bondage are of greater consequence. It was the bondage of sin that ultimately led King Noah's people into physical bondage. A kind of a connection that we talked about earlier in the introduction to this chapter. Now the final section of this chapter, verses 23 through 26, we find that uh, Gideon's idea is correct Uh, That is who abducted the daughters of the Lamanites and his hope that the king of the Lamanites could be pacified and also that the king of the Lamanites would help to pacify the Lamanite armies that were preparing to come again against the Nephites. All of this did come to fruition. So we read this, and now Limhi told the king all the things concerning his father and the priests that had fled into the wilderness and attributed the carrying away of their daughters to them. And it came to pass that the king was pacified towards his people. And he said unto them, Let us go forth and meet my people without arms. And I swear unto you with an oath that my people shall not slay thy people. So what we have to envision here is that the king of the Lamanites was held captive by the Nephites. Uh, he, But even in that state, even though there's a, a terrible, or, or I should say a great power gradient going on. The king of the Lamanites is most certainly inclined to agree with the Nephites because of the situation that he is in. He now proves that he really does agree that Limhi's people were not responsible for abducting these daughters, and so he's willing to help to pacify this army of Lamanites that's coming against the Nephites. He then provides his input and adds to Gideon's plan. By saying, "Let us go forth to meet my people," so let us, meaning that the Nephites would go forth to meet this army of the Lamanites, and they would do so unarmed. And at their head, as they march toward them, is the king of the Lamanites. To the great surprise of this Nephite army, and an oath is made in this uh, in this planning, uh, where where there's this conversation between uh, Limhi, the king of the Lamanites, and Gideon. And a new oath is made, and he says, I swear unto you with an oath that my people shall not slay thy people. Well, the king of the Lamanites ends up being correct. That is what happens. In verse 25, and it came to pass that they followed the king and went forth without arms to meet the Lamanites. So they're out on the field of battle. And again, very surprisingly, the king of Lamanites is marching at their head. And it came to pass that they did meet the Lamanites, and the king of the Lamanites did bow himself down before them, and he did plead in behalf of the people of Limhi. So quite a remarkable thing. And when the Lamanites saw the people of Limhi, that they were without arms, they had compassion on them, and were pacified towards them, and returned with their king in peace to their own land. Up to this point, it seems that it's the power of the oath that was made between these two nations that kept the peace, but here we're actually seeing some virtue on the part of the Lamanites. They had compassion upon the Nephites and were pacified towards them. This is intriguing indeed. Now, this is our first glimpse into the, the Lamanite psyche in a way, and when we can see that they too have goodness among them, and that will be proven in abundance much later as we go to. Uh, By the sons of Mosiah who go to preach among these same people later. This chapter, Mosiah chapter 20, kind of has a nice arc and some symmetry to it because it begins with this problem where these Lamanite daughters are abducted and then war ensues and then it ends with this solution that we've just read of in in verse 26. And so when we move into Mosiah chapter 21, will kind of move into a new episode um, that will be related to what just happened, but it also allows us to move into this meeting with Ammon, and then the people of Limhi uh, will begin to plan uh, their escape from the city of Lehi-Nephi, the city of Shilom, and the lands round about. In other words, their tenure in the land of Nephi is about to come to an end. This will not happen, however, until things become Several degrees worse still in the first part of Mosiah chapter 21. So we'll come to that shortly. For now, this brings us to the end of Mosiah chapter 20. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel Passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I of course am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives. And most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.